Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we have another lecture from one of our Theopolis fellows given at the recent Theopolitan Ministry Conference here in Birmingham, Alabama. And here, Jack Fernisevich gives a lecture on liturgical timekeeping. We really hope that you enjoy this lecture, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here is Jack Fernisevich discussing the Gospel of Luke in liturgical time. I'm pleased to uh, introduce our next lecturer, Jack Fernisevich. Uh, Jack is, uh, as Cameron is, a graduate of the 2019 class of the Theopolis Fellows Program. Uh, Jack is currently a deacon in the ACNA, uh, and he teaches at the Field School uh, in Chicago. So welcome, Jack Fernisevich. Great. I uh, had not written an introduction before this until this morning, and Dr. Lehart gave a perfect introduction. I'm uh, saying the same thing he said, but a little bit less well and more focused. I gave you an outline in there. If you're following along with an outline, point one uh, is nothing like this point one, but uh, the other ones are all the same. Uh, You can disregard it if you'd like or follow it. Uh, There are slides up here. Uh, I'm going to say everything that's on the slides, but if you don't want to look at me, you can look at that instead and it'll help you out a lot. But I'm really excited to share with you about what I'm learning about the Sabbath. Uh, Peter this morning opened by telling us that shepherds are kings, and because pastors are shepherds, pastors are kings also. This doesn't necessarily change the things that pastors do as the content of their ministry. Pastors still preside over sacramental worship. They preach and they teach. They lead groups of volunteers. They make visits to the people in their church, and they offer counsel. But Identifying a pastor as a king just changes the way in which pastors do those same things. You do them in a royal way, unless of perhaps a therapeutic way or a coaching way. One of the things that pastors do and that kings do is keep liturgical time. And that's the topic for my talk today. Pastors keep Sunday worship. Sunday morning, you stand up in front of people and say, welcome to church. And people say, oh yeah, uh, with their coffee or not their coffee and People have different takes on what Sunday means, why we're here, what we're doing when we worship. And like a good king, a good pastor will help people know what Sunday means, why we're here, uh, what we're doing. Um, I don't have any groundbreaking ideas about Sunday, but I've done some work in the Bible that I'd like to share. Kings, again, keep festal time. After Moses, the first person to preside over the Passover was not a priest, but Joshua who we heard is a shepherd figure, a king-type figure. After Joshua keeps the Passover, the next person in the Bible who keeps the Passover is King Hezekiah. The next person we hear about keeping the Passover is King Josiah. And then we see Jesus in the Gospels, and we shouldn't see Jesus in the Gospels at Passover as necessarily a priest figure, but like Joshua and Josiah and Hezekiah, he's a king keeping Passover for his people. I want to begin with a couple of premises, like Peter did. It was a really good idea. I'm trying to talk more like him. The first one, if you're you're taking notes and want to take it down, is that uh, in Scripture, the primary example or figure of weekly worship is the Sabbath. So if we're thinking as pastors about we worship weekly, well, guess what? That's in the Old Testament, too. It's called the Sabbath. 
it's not new news, I'm not trying to be cheeky, I just want to establish that first is why we're going to study the Sabbath today. The second premise is it's the pastor's job to lead weekly worship. And so what I'm trying to get at along the lines of what Peter began this morning is that it's the royal role of the pastor to lead their congregation in keeping the Sabbath or worshiping weekly. What I'm going to do in my talk is a couple of things. Uh, three. The, f- the first one is I want to talk about the meaning of the Sabbath in Exodus and Leviticus. There's some focused kind of Bible thoughts from those two books. And then give a sampling of how some of the church fathers thought about the Sabbath in a New Testament or in a New Covenant context. So that's kind of the first uh, expository bit. The second bit is I want to talk about time in Scripture and how Scripture keeps time and tells time. That'll be kind of a theoretical bit if you want to get into philosophy of time. But then the bulk of the time, I want to focus on Luke's gospel and the way that Luke keeps time and Luke tells time uh, and what Old Testament ideas he's drawing from. And my goal is that this will enrich our vision for what Sunday worship is and what pastors do when they call people to worship on Sundays. The Sabbath command is given in Exodus 20, uh, verses 8 and following. It's given again in Deuteronomy chapter 5, and verses 12 and following, following. And I think it's best understood within the literary matrix of the Exodus. You think about the Sabbath in the context of Exodus. People have observed before that the command to do no work is not just addressed to individuals or to the workforce in general, but to heads of households. It's you do no work, you and all your household, your sons and your daughters and your male servants and your female servants and your animals. So it's kind of a two-fold command. You do no work, and the people who work for you should also do no work. That's kind of up to you, isn't it? Um, Rest and also give rest to other people. That's what the Sabbath command says. Uh, With this in view, in the story of Exodus, we have one major transgressor of the Sabbath command. Can you think of somebody in the Exodus who doesn't let people have rest? In Exodus chapter 5, Moses goes up to the Pharaoh and says, Can my people go into the wilderness for three days to worship the Lord? Pharaoh says, No, they may not. Rest, and that's the first use of the word Sabbath in the book of Exodus, out of the mouth of Pharaoh. And the consequence for not getting to rest, or not, (laughs) Pharaoh's consequence for not letting Israel rest is he doesn't get to have Israel at all. And the Lord takes Israel away from Pharaoh and says, okay, we'll all let them rest. If Pharaoh had observed the Sabbath, this is speculative now, if Pharaoh had said, sure, you guys can go and have a long weekend in the desert and worship the Lord and come back, then maybe the exodus wouldn't have happened. This is speculative. I'm not I'm trying to be special here. But just, but just, just think about it. If Pharaoh had let God's people go and come back and had a, a healthy economics where people were allowed to worship the Lord, there would have been less need for deliverance. As it stands, Pharaoh did not let people go, and so Moses had to... Uh, or The Lord had to... Uh, deliver Israel out of Pharaoh's hands. Um, This should serve as a warning to people who read the book of Exodus and think, what does God do to people when they won't let God's people rest? Well, he casts them into the sea and takes them away. And so if you have any rulership over a household, the command is to you, don't be like Pharaoh. Let God's people go at least for three days. 
In the very next chapter of Exodus, uh, the first law given uh, is a manumission law. According to this manumission law in Exodus 21, in the seventh year that a person is a slave, he shall, quote, go out free for nothing, end quote, accompanied by his wife. And this shows that the Sabbath is not just a day of rest, but the Sabbath is a principle of liberation and restoration. Introduced in the Decalogue, every seventh day you rest. Developed in the Book of the Covenant, every seventh year your slaves go free. The Sabbath isn't just weekly worship, but the Sabbath is a principle of letting people go to worship the Lord. Uh, This law in Exodus 21 gets an update in Deuteronomy 15. I'm going to read part of Deuteronomy 15 to you. It gives instructions for how a head of a household is supposed to release his slaves in the seventh year. Uh, Deuteronomy says this, And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your winepress. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. One scholar drew a connection this way, and uh, he'll actually argue that the primary purpose, or one of them, of Exodus chapters 1 through 12 is to tell the story of how the Sabbath came to be and why the manumission laws came to be. I'm quoting from a commentary now. Uh, These are some helpful words. He says, Although wanting to retain indefinitely his Hebrew male and female slaves, the Pharaoh has to release them and provide them material benefits when they depart from Egypt. The rule, in turn, is about recalling this period of history in Egypt and how an Israelite should release his male and female slaves after a definite period of time and give them provisions when they depart. The Sabbath is not just about release either. It's about releasing your slaves and providing for them to worship the Lord. The Sabbath is about giving people the things they need to make offerings to the Lord before you send them on their way. The Sabbath is developed even more in Leviticus 23, um, a darn good chapter of the Bible if I don't say so myself. In Leviticus 23, the Lord gives Israel a whole calendar of holidays all at once. I want to compare uh, Israel here to America. Um, A little bit of American history, the church declares holidays too. Imagine with me, I'm going to do more of this speculation up front, it's kind of fun. Imagine that America developed all of its holidays in the same year, back in 1870. They said, we're just going to make all of our holidays up right now. And we're going to have one of those holidays be the main one, America's main holiday. And maybe it's the 4th of July, for for example. But the 4th of July, we have fireworks. We go outside after dark. We have barbecue. We celebrate the fight for freedom, the Declaration of Human Rights. And every other holiday is kind of a mini 4th of July. Like Thanksgiving is also a mini 4th of July. Or Christmas is also, at its heart, a mini 4th of July. And Labor Day is a mini 4th of July. That's not how it works, but that's how Israel's calendar works. They have a whole calendar of feasts all given at once, and the heart of every holiday is the Sabbath. Every holiday in in Leviticus 23 is called a Sabbath. You shall do no work. You shall do no work. You shall do no work. Remember that you were called out of slavery. Remember you were called out of slavery. They have the same basic premise. Israel did have a main holiday. That holiday was the Sabbath, and... 
The people's faithful observance of the Sabbath every week was supposed to establish a pattern for their faithful observance of the rest of the festivals. Leviticus 23, verse 3 gives instructions for the Sabbath, and every other festival is at least partially made up by keeping the Sabbath. Every single one of these holidays, all heads of household are obligated to let their households do no work, give their sons and daughters the day off or the week off, give their male servants and female servants the day off or the week off, or even the year off in some cases. Every holiday is a Sabbath. That's why it's so important. The Sabbath principle gets even bigger, and I want to end here with my Sabbath talk. Uh, In Leviticus 25, when we get not just a Sabbath day, but a concept called the Sabbath year, which gives rest for the whole land, which implies rest for people who work the land, and people eat together out of the harvest of the land. The Sabbath year is ballooned up every 49 years. You get another whole year off called the year of Jubilee, where land ownings are returned to the people who originally owned them. Household sizes diminish a little bit as people who used to own their own land but came to work for you because they got sick or they got poor go back to their own uh, places. And there's a kind of reset button, in a sense, for how things work. The Sabbath, in conclusion here, is not just a weekly day of rest, but it's a weekly day of remembering that the Lord delivered people away from the Pharaoh who would not let God's people have rest. Every holiday is a Sabbath. Every holiday is a peaceful, legal reenactment of the Sabbath, where instead of leaving Egypt, you just leave your workplace and have a barbecue and fireworks. Um, Maybe not literally fireworks, but you get the point, I think. That's the Sabbath. That's why I think it's important. Um, In the New Testament, we get some words about the Sabbath, like uh, man is not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath is made for man. And people read the New Testament and think, well, maybe the Sabbath doesn't mean as much now as it used to. We don't need to rest on Saturdays. We can have fun on Saturdays. And pastors are like, that's not the point. There's more to the Sabbath than that. I'm going to give a little sampling of what some of the church fathers have said about the Sabbath. Um, I'll read these texts in full. You can uh, listen or look along. Ephraim of Syria said, the first day of the week, the firstborn of days, is worthy of reference. For it holds many mysteries, so pay it your respect. For that day has taken the right of primogeniture from the Sabbath. Blessed is he who keeps the first day with holy observance. The law, Exodus, prescribes that rest be given to servants and animals, so that servants, maidservants, and employees may cease from work. So one approach is just to say everything that the Sabbath used to be, we just do on Sundays now. That's Ephraim. Justin Martyr makes it a little bit more extreme. He says, the new law requires you to keep perpetual Sabbath. Justin knew that the Sabbath was a big deal, and you shouldn't just let people go one day a week, but you should let people go all the time. He says this, uh, you, because you're idle for one day, suppose you're pious. You don't understand why this has been commanded you. The Lord our God does not take pleasure in such observances. If there's any perjured person or thief among you, let him cease to be so. Adulterers should repent, and that person has kept the sweet and true Sabbaths of God. Every day is a Sabbath. Um, The Sabbath means repentance from your ways and following the law of love. Weekly worship doesn't quite matter in this case, or the Sabbath's not about weekly worship. It's about changing your ways and following the law of love. 
One more. I know I'm just taking one little sentence from Augustine, which isn't fair. I'm not saying this is his take on the Sabbath, but it's one thing he said about it. Listen to this. The observance of the Sabbath is not to be accepted carnally, but spiritually. And we've heard this in churches too. It's about spiritual rest, not physical rest. Um, Carnal rest was entirely abolished both by our Lord and the Father's. Our Sabbath takes place in the heart. So it's not about slavery. It's not about letting people go. It's not about economics. It's not about bosses and servants and employees, or even about time in a way. It's a spiritual observance of the Sabbath. Uh, Two more, Thomas Aquinas. Uh, The Sabbath is a moral precept insofar as it enjoins man to set apart some time for the things of God. In this respect, it's comprised among the moral precepts of the enduring Decalogue, but not according to the time appointed. That's the ceremonial part of it. So to take just a little part from Thomas, Thomas says, yeah, Sabbath is great. Set apart some time for God that's part of the moral law. But as far as that being Saturday, that's Israel's ceremonial that doesn't apply to us. From a Reformed author who takes the same view as Thomas, uh, listen to this. He says, like Thomas does, although the ceremonial Sabbath is dismantled in the New Testament, the moral Sabbath continueth still and belongeth unto us. And even the very general of the ceremonial Sabbath belongeth unto us and doth still remain, which is that some time be allotted for the ministry of the church. We've got to have some day wherein the word of God may be taught and the sacraments given, but nevertheless, we are not tied down for it to be Saturday or Wednesday or any other kind of day. And so the Sabbath doesn't belong to us ceremonial and special in particular. It does belong to us and to all men, and it continues morally, but ceremonially only in general. Uh, in short, it doesn't matter what day it is. We're not commemorating anything per se. The Sabbath isn't a remembrance as much as it is a principle of rest and of giving rest. I don't love any of these 100%, and I think that the Bible gives us something more thorough, and the New Testament doesn't totally cut out the meaningfulness of time. I'm most inclined toward Ephraim of Syria, who says, yes, we should keep the law, and yes, Sunday is special. He doesn't do a lot in this sermon to tie them together, but I'm hoping with the rest of what I have to say, we can show how in the New Testament, the Sabbath and some other feasts kind of funnel together into a new holiday called Sunday, or the first day of the week. I'm looking at a way to integrate everything we've heard about the Sabbath and what we do together on Sundays. This talk is called Keeping the Sabbath, What Sunday Might Mean to Luke. The second thing I told you I would do is talk about liturgical time. Um, I recently did a lot of work studying liturgical time and concepts of liturgical time, so I'm going to give you some definitions and theory stuff. This, I think, is worth writing down. Um, I can't make that decision for you, but I would write it down uh, if I was in the seats. The brief definition of timing. Timing is the coordination of activities and events. I got this from a time scholar named Sasha Stern, who studied Uh, Jewish notions of time. Sasha Stern thinks that Israel didn't have a notion of time, but uh, only of timing, coordinating activities and events. 
Let me give you an example of what this might mean. If I give you these two sentences, um, you would feel um, the difference between them, I think, immediately because of what you know about our recent history. Listen to sentence number one. Fred's church plant held their first service a few weeks before Easter. Fred's church plant held their first service a few weeks before Easter. This is generally a happy sentence. Good for Fred. (laughs) There's another church, whoopee. Easter's coming. That's going to be fun for them, their first Easter together. It'll it'll be a good community-building moment for King Fred. Um, But if I give you that same story, but with different timing, listen to this. Fred's church plant held their first service the weekend before COVID made national headlines. It's less of a happy story because Fred's church plant died. (laughs) Um, Same same day, but it's called different things. Um, We could say Fred's church plant held their first service the first Sunday of March 2020. Okay, so that's like technically true, but it gives no color. Is it like the Sunday right before Easter? Or the Sunday right before COVID and the lockdowns. The way that you tell time in a story, the way that you choose which activities or events to locate your story around. Fred planted a church. When did he plant it? Before Easter? True. Before COVID? Also true. And the way a person tells a story is part of the dramatics of it. I'm going to argue that the Bible does this. There's timing, religious timing, adds another element. Religious timing, this is again from Sasha Stern and a few others. The coordination of divine, natural, and social activities and events. I'll go back to the 4th of July for a second here. Uh, God delivered America out of the hands of England, some might say, others might not say. We celebrate this on a dark summer night where we can see fireworks. We celebrate it by gathering and barbecuing and doing fireworks. Uh, divine events, things that God does, natural events, how the, how the spheres and the heavens move, and social activities, what we do, coordinates together to form religious time. Uh, one step further, this is the last step, I'm proposing an idea called liturgical timing, and this is the last definition. Um, liturgical timing is the same thing, the coordination of religious time with three specific activities, storytelling, right-making, and right-keeping. Following Dr. Lightheart from this morning, I'm arguing that kings do this. Kings institute holidays. They tell you why. It's no strange thing that the federal government declares the 4th of July a holiday. Makes sense. The ritual is everybody gets the day off, like the Sabbath. Uh, Christian worship isn't required, but lots of social rights exist that are great and fun. We have a tradition of understanding the 4th of July. The 4th of July has an institution narrative. We teach it to our kids in U.S. history classes. You might reread the Declaration of Independence on the 4th of July to remind yourself of those things. The meaning of the 4th of July has also developed over time. Frederick Douglass gave a famous speech. He said, the 4th of July is yours, it's not mine. You may rejoice, but I must mourn. 
to drag a man in fetters into the grand, illumined temple of liberty and call upon him to join you in joyous anthems are inhuman mockery and sacrilegious irony. And Douglas is uh, pointing to the fact that uh, it's good that we declared independence and won freedom, but the freedom didn't apply to everybody. And so the 4th of July, in a sense, isn't complete yet. It was instituted, it's been critically developed, and there's been a prophetic voice that said, well, we're not all the way there yet. And so we point to a fulfillment of the 4th of July, <laughs> the eschatology of the 4th of July. One of you can write that essay. I don't want to write that essay. Um, but it's what the church hopes for. Yeah, Pharaoh is cast into the sea. Death and hell were defeated. And every Pharaoh one day will be defeated and all people will enjoy liberty. That's what the hope is for. Uh, what, what I hope to have shown you here is that um, religious holidays have institution stories. They have development stories over time. And they point toward a fulfillment of those holidays too. Uh, the holidays don't celebrate something that's done, but to a future that's coming. In the Christian tradition, some of them are fulfilled. We would say the Passover is fulfilled. Uh, but the Sabbath, Hebrews says, there's, there's, there's still a Sabbath waiting for us, an eternal Sabbath for the children of God. That gets me to Luke. And the, uh, I don't know if this has felt like meat. Those were, in my opinion, the sides. I give you the, the potatoes and the green beans. And the rest of the lecture, I want to spend looking at the way that Luke tells time. A few fast facts. Uh, Luke's gospel tells stories that occur during the Sabbath, during the Passover, and during the Feast of Firstfruits. In Luke's gospel, Jesus will discuss the meaning of the Sabbath and do controversial things on it. And he'll discuss the meaning of the Passover and do new things on it. And finally, Luke's gospel records new institution narratives for new uh, liturgical time. The Lord's Supper, which is a new ritual, and the first day of the week, a new phrase that appears in all four Gospels. Jesus rises on the first day of the week, the first day of the week in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, a little bit of background to this study. Um, the, the sentences that I gave you at Fred's new church plant met for the first time a few weeks before Easter. Those little phrases, a few weeks before Easter, some scholars have called temporal coordinates. It's where you locate a story or an event in time. Luke has 89 temporal coordinates. I just did a graduate program where I wrote a thesis that examined all 89 of them. Don't read it. Um, <laughs> what does he mean by before Easter? Um, I'm going to give you two examples. Uh, one, because they're fun, and two, because they're helpful. Luke's first temporal coordinate is in Luke chapter 1 and verse 5. Um, it begins with the words, In the days of Herod the king, in the days of Herod the king, Zechariah was a priest. There's a priest named Zechariah. Luke doesn't say, like, in the year 6 BC, or in the year 1 BC, uh, that kind of time didn't exist yet, but he was mostly interested in saying, well, there was Herod and there was Zechariah. Why? I don't know, but it's meaningful. Um, there's a relationship between Zechariah's priesthood and Herod's kingship. It reminds us that Israel doesn't have its own king right now, and so Luke is starting in a way like Exodus starts. Exodus starts with a foreign king. Luke starts with a foreign king. What's going to happen? Well, what happened in Exodus? A figure came to declare freedom. What's going to happen in Luke? 
Well, you've read the story, you know. Um, one more example, Luke's second temporal coordinate is more liturgically specific. Um, it's in Luke 1, verse 8. Uh, this is weird. Uh, then it happened during his liturgical service to God in the appointed order of his division. Then we hear about Zechariah's being chosen by lot to burn incense in the temple. It tells us that Zechariah was a member of the priestly division of Abijah. The Bible tells us about Abijah's service. Um, Zechariah was serving under the order of Abijah, which every year occurred during the fourth weeks of the month Ziv and the fourth week of the month Bull. This was the fourth week of the, of, uh, the month Ziv uh, during Abijah's service that Israel uh, freed themselves from Antiochus Epiphanes of the Seleucids. So Zechariah is serving in the temple now, burning incense the same week that years ago Israel fought back against the Seleucids. This is interesting to me because Israel was conquered by the Seleucids in the first place because they refused to profane the Sabbath by defending themselves on it, First Maccabees says in chapter 2. But Mattathias, a priest, reverses this rule and permits Israel to make self-defense on the Sabbath. He says, let us wage war against any man who comes upon us for a war on the Sabbath day, 1 Maccabees 2.41. So throw that back into Luke. When is Zechariah serving? Well, it's during Abijah's service. What does Abijah's service mean? Well, it's the week where Israel decided that they would fight on the Sabbath to free themselves from the Seleucids. Does that matter? I mean, time matters, history matters, probably it does. Will there be any kind of Sabbath controversy in Luke's gospel? Yes. Okay, well, that's, that's the, that's the uh, kind of concept behind what, what, I'm, what I'm doing here. I'm going to look at things that happen in, in Luke's gospel and throughout the Bible on the Sabbath and on the Passover and on first fruits, and uh, share some nuggets from the Bible. If we're trying to figure out what the Sabbath means, I encourage you to not take this down, but just to look at it. Um, there are ways in which we could do this. The Sabbath is instituted in Genesis 2 and in Exodus 20. Throughout the Bible, we have examples of people talking critically about the Sabbath, like Frederick Douglass talks about the 4th of July, Isaiah 56. Isaiah will talk about how to keep a real Sabbath. Luke 23, the women who adorn Jesus rest, quote, according to the commandment on the Sabbath. Then we get these other stories that are, we call them fulfillment narratives or teachings. Um, on the Sabbath day, Jesus says, yeah, well, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Well, that helps us understand what the Sabbath is. If we want to understand the Sabbath, let's look at passages like that. And then Hebrews 4, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So there is some kind of future Sabbath Two. I'm at the point now where I can tell you what we're doing for the rest of the time. Sabbath, we're going to look at two passages in Luke's gospel where Jesus talks about the Sabbath or Luke talks about the Sabbath, and I'm going to share some insights. I do the same thing for Passover and first fruits. So you can look at your Bibles or look at the screen. First, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus goes, as was his custom, to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He's handed the scroll of Isaiah and he reads from it, and then he sits down. And some controversy follows. What does Jesus read? Well, he reads Isaiah 61, mostly. He says, as Isaiah 61 says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim liberty, the word is aphesis, to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind. Then he pivots back to Isaiah 58 in verse 6. It inserts one little line from it. To set at liberty, aphesis, those who are oppressed. And then goes back to Isaiah 61 to finish. Yeah, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What's going on? What's worth noticing here? All sorts of things, but I'll point at a few of them. Is what's novel that Jesus edits Isaiah 61 to add Isaiah 58? Probably not. We have records uh, in Qumran scrolls of Qumran scrolls of these passages being united before. This is a, a pairing that's already happened. Jesus isn't the first person, probably, to pair Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 58 that the Qumran community uh, had. Uh, questions remain like, well, why were they combining these two chapters in the first place? Isaiah 61 is about the year of Jubilee. Isaiah 58 is about the Sabbath year. I want you to notice that on the Sabbath day, Jesus reads scriptures about the Sabbath year and the year of Jubilee. I call this the sabbatical triad. Well, I wrote a grad school paper. I had to make up a new term to sound relevant, and that was my term, the sabbatical triad. It's a way of keeping the Sabbath not just as one day of rest, but a day of rest and release of captives unto rest, looking forward to a year of releasing your slaves and looking forward to a 50-year cycle of giving land back to people who lost it for poverty reasons or sickness reasons. When Jesus preaches on the Sabbath, he preaches with the year of Jubilee in mind, and he preaches with the Sabbath year in mind, too. So he's keeping those, he's keeping that big vision of the Sabbath together, I would argue. Um, a couple little things in here. He quotes just one little line from Isaiah 58. It's a long passage. Why that one little line? I'm not going to argue it to you, but I'm going to suggest to you it's the word aphesis as a key word. Release. Liberty. For manumission. In Luke's gospel, also forgiveness. Isaiah 61 tells a story of what's going to happen. The year of the Lord's favor is upon us. Isaiah 58 says what to do. Well, you proclaim liberty by setting at liberty those who are oppressed. Isaiah 58 is about ethics. Isaiah 61 is about eschatology. On the Sabbath day, we think about setting the captives free to look forward to a time when all are set free. That's one. Um, the other thing I want you to notice, um, the word to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor is a word that Jesus changes from the Septuagint. Um, the Septuagint has the word kalesai, uh, to proclaim, but Jesus chooses kerukai, to proclaim. Why? My guess is that the word kerukai is from Leviticus 25. Proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, he's calling back specifically past Isaiah and into Leviticus 25. What are the implications of this? Well, that's a hard question, and I'm not going to tackle it. But Jesus is keeping the big Sabbath in mind when he talks about the Sabbath. Then he goes and does ministry that involves specifically proclaiming liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, healing those who are sick with various diseases. 
One more passage from Luke. Uh, In Luke chapter 6, in verse 1, we get a story of what's called a Sabbath controversy. There are a few of these in the Gospels where Jesus does something on a Sabbath that gets him into trouble. Um, On the Sabbath, he's going through the grain fields with the disciples who eat some grain, and the Pharisees say, why are you doing what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus gives an answer about what David did. Um, Many people have their attention drawn to Jesus' argument here and say, oh, Jesus made up a cool argument about David. Um, This isn't the case either. Uh, Scholars have found this argument given before Jesus. Um, Jesus is not the first person, that is, to argue that he's being like David. This is just an accepted position within rabbinical debates. Jesus isn't being like a novel or innovative lawbreaker here but just saying, I side with a party who argues from David. That's not a controversial thing to say. It's just him showing his cards. What is controversial is his final sentence. And he said to them, Oh, also, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Lord of the Sabbath was a name uh, used to describe Yahweh in the Exodus. Yahweh is Lord of the Sabbath. Why is Yahweh Lord of the Sabbath? Because Pharaoh used to be Lord of the Sabbath, because he was in charge of who got to rest and when. And Yahweh took that from him when he took the people away. And he became the Lord who gives what he calls my Sabbaths. In Exodus 31, Jesus is identifying himself as the one who took people away from Pharaoh and who gave them true rest. Jesus is the one who proclaims release to the captives and offers them rest. All right, that's Luke and some Sabbath stuff. Um, Luke and the Passover, I want to give you a couple passages here too. Um, In Luke chapter 22, Jesus observes the Passover. Um, Famously, (laughs) we we know the story. Um, But I want to use my little matrix again uh, to think about what Jesus is doing as a celebrant of the Passover. So uh, probably not worth turning to these chapters that I'm pointing out, but I'm going to read to you... uh, parts of Numbers 9 and Joshua 5 to show that Jesus is not the first person to observe the Sabbath. What does it look like in the Bible when the Sabbath, sorry, when when the Passover time comes and the kingly figure brings some people to himself and says, okay, it's Passover time. Here's what we're going to do. Numbers chapter 9. Here we go. One year after the Exodus, Yahweh speaks to Moses and tells him to keep the Passover. And the first Passover meal was in the institution in Egypt in Exodus 12. The second Passover meal was a reenactment, as it were, or a commemoration of it. In Numbers chapter 9 at verses 3 and 5 and 11, the Lord spells out exactly when they'll celebrate, and so they celebrate at that time, the first month of the second year on the 14th day. The only wrinkle is that in Numbers 9 verse 6, it says that, quote, certain men were unclean, And so they ask Moses and Aaron, what should we do? And Moses and Aaron then ask the Lord, and the Lord tells them, "Um, have a second Passover at the same time next month. It's kind of like a COVID wedding celebration. It's like, well, we got married, but everyone was unclean, so we're having another party. (laughs) You celebrate with us again and bring us more gifts. Um, That's how the first Passover worked. It was going to be great. All of Israel was going to party for the Passover. And people said, oh, we can't. So Moses said, fine, we'll do two Passovers. They celebrate the next month. And then the day after that second Passover happens, all of Israel sets out together from Sinai. 
if we're taking time, like, objectively, we could say there's a, a whole year plus 14 days or so plus a month between the time that they left Egypt and the time they set out for Sinai, or set out from Sinai. Um, there was Egypt, there was a whole year, and then they left for the promised land. But if we're taking time liturgically and more commemoratively, it's as if Israel goes straight from Egypt into Canaan. We're going to pretend the last year uh, almost never happened. We're going to do the Passover again to practice relieving Egypt and setting out toward Canaan. It's the same kind of thing that happens in Joshua uh, in chapter 5. If you're fast with your Bible, you can turn to Joshua 5 at verse 10 and look along with me, or I'll just read it to you. We don't get another Passover story in the whole book of Numbers or in Deuteronomy until we get one 40 years later when Joshua celebrates it. Uh, The point doesn't seem to be that Israel didn't celebrate for 40 years, but that there wasn't one worth recording in Scripture as particularly significant until this one that Joshua celebrates. Looking at verses 11 and 12, the details of their celebration are pretty thin because the focus of the Passover story in Joshua 5 is on the day that comes after Passover. It says, quote, The day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna seized the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. So the day after the Passover in Exodus 12, Israel leaves Egypt. The day after Moses' Passover in Numbers 9, Israel begins wandering toward Canaan. The day after Joshua's Passover, Israel officially finishes their wandering and starts eating Canaan's fruit. There's a pattern here. The day after Passover, a new thing happens. The effect seems to be that Israel's liturgical calendar squeezes their history together. It brings Egypt and Canaan right next to each other. One day it's Passover, next day it's the new place. It's as if they walked straight out of Egypt and began eating Canaan's fruit the very next day. And that's why, back in Leviticus 23, the first day after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which includes Passover, is called the Feast of Firstfruits. Right after Passover comes Firstfruits. Egypt to Canaan. Passover to Firstfruits. If you celebrate Passover one week and Firstfruits the next day, it's like you've done the whole Exodus and Solomon's story in a week's time. When we see Jesus presiding over the Passover rite, I think that Luke wants us to see a new thing coming right after Passover. One more story. This is from uh, 2 Chronicles 30. Hezekiah is the next person to celebrate Passover. In the first year of his reign, King Hezekiah repairs the temple and restores worship. Uh, Quote, the service of the house of Yahweh was restored. And then Hezekiah presides over the Passover. But again, it happens in the second month, not the first month. It's kind of like Moses' round two COVID wedding. This time, the feast isn't modified because certain men are unclean, but because they just aren't ready yet. Uh, It's not going to be everything that Hezekiah wanted it to be. Hezekiah envisions a feast that reunites the kingdom. So he sends his couriers out everywhere, calling them to observe the Passover as a new witness to their unified history as a reminder of Exodus and Canaan. Evidently, the Lord loves this idea. So he responds in 30 verse 12 by giving Judah, quote, one heart to follow this command, quote, and many people came. 
The feast is so successful that, quote, the whole assembly agreed together to extend the feast seven more days, after which the formerly divided people tear down a whole bunch of idols and then go home. Sennacherib ridicules Israel for worshiping around one altar, and then Israel defeats him the next day. Again, the Passover squeezes history together and compresses it. Israel is reunited around one common story before pressing into God's future together. They renew their worship, they repent, they break down their idols, they choose unity, and they enter something new together the next day. It seems like this is why Scripture tells Passover stories. So, Jesus, Luke 22, uh, celebrates Passover. Um, I was looking at my watch, I got distracted. Jesus celebrates the Passover, and he's supposed to be like Joshua. It's a settlement story. It's time for new food. The new food that I give you, which is my body and my blood. He's like Hezekiah, who reunites Jew and Gentile in one, gives them a new meal. As the Lord brings them together and calls them to tear down their idols and worship and defeat enemies. It's a kingly feast. When we preside over the Eucharist on Sundays, we're like Joshua, and we're like Hezekiah, and we're like Jesus, offering this ritual meal that compresses all of our history and says, the night he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. We talk about the whole story of sin and redemption. It is a kingly function to celebrate the Eucharist. That's what we're doing on Sundays. And first fruits. I talked about the Sabbath, I talked about the Passover. Luke also tells stories that take place on first fruits. Um, Luke 24, verse 1 says, But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Bum, bum, bum. And if you know the story, they do find Jesus. He gives them a new meal, and it's great. It's a good story. But it starts, it starts dark, like all, like all good comedies do. Um, why does Luke say it's the first day of the week? Um, you didn't have to. It's our argument that it's meaningful. Matthew also says the first day of the week. Mark says the first day of the week. John says the first day of the week. What's the point? Uh, the point is it's a new holiday. Uh, it's not in Leviticus 23. It's a new holiday called the first day. Revelation will call it the Lord's Day. Uh, people have also called it Sunday. Some Christians don't call it Sunday because we don't worship the sun. We worship the sun with an O. Fair. It's called the Lord's Day, and you split the difference. Um, the punchline of this section is that the first day of the week also happens to fall on an old feast. Uh, Jesus celebrates his Passover in the middle of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is a week long and it ends on a Sabbath that's an especially sacred Sabbath. Um, we could call that Saturday, Holy Saturday. Jesus is in the tomb on Saturday. He's certainly resting. And the first day of the week after the Sabbath that ends the Feast of Unleavened Bread is the Feast of First Fruits. Jesus rises on the Feast of First Fruits. That's pretty fun. Um, first fruits is a less famous holiday, and so I want to talk a little bit about what first fruits means in Leviticus 
23. Um, if you already know all about first fruits, you can tune me out for four minutes. If you don't know about it or want a refresher, here comes. Leviticus 23, verses 9 through 22, describes two harvest rites. Uh, the first offering of barley, called first fruits, which takes place on the first day after the Sabbath that concludes the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then the next verses describe the first offering of wheat. It's called the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost, seven weeks after the initial barley offering rite. The first fruits rite, which offers up barley, has two parts. First, the priest offers up a lamb as an ascension offering. In my uh, paper that I turned in, I wrote burnt offering, because you've got to do what you've got to do. But at Theopolis, I can say ascension offering. Then the people follow, presenting their own barley offerings. And it looks like the presence of the priest's ascension offerings elevates the people's barley offering into a properly sacrificial rite. It also looks like each land-owning member of the community was expected to contribute a barley offering from their own household. The point of first fruits isn't that the priest offers a lamb. The point of first fruits is that the people present their own barley-based cereal offerings and the priests uh, lift them up. The community is expected to apply work to their harvested barley by making cakes. Uh, a barley offering would have been crushed and roasted in the home. It would have looked identical to the free will offering or non-compulsory offerings that people could offer from their harvest at other times. This is just a special, a special day for it. The offering has several purposes, but the primary purpose was for Israel to thank the Lord for settling them in the new land. Notably, Leviticus 23 at verse 10 explicitly says um, there's a time before Israel reaps harvest in the new land, and there's a time after you reap your first harvest. And he says not to observe first fruits until, quote, you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest. So they're not celebrating this for the 40 years that they wander. They're celebrating it once they get to the land and have fruits that are first to offer. And that's why Joshua 5 is, I think, such a key text. It's the first time Israel does first fruits. Um, it's a big Passover day and a big first fruits day. Um, the main point of first fruits, I think, is not an abstract principle, like give your best things to God, but it's a historical and a liturgical commemoration that the Lord delivered Israel out of slavery under Pharaoh in Egypt into freedom and settlement and land-owning in Canaan under Yahweh, who is the Lord of the Sabbath. Um, Psalm 30 uh, was traditionally sung in Israel on the Feast of First Fruits and the 49 days following. The liturgical decision to use Psalm 30 to accompany First Fruits offerings is interesting because of its resurrection themes, especially at verse 3. Yahweh, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Jewish tradition has it that when Mordecai was exalted in Esther, he sang Psalm 30 to praise the Lord. You have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. And people point out that Hosea's line where he says, on the third day he will raise us up. It's a traditional theological reflection that the Lord uh, delivered Mordecai, delivered Jonah, raised Joseph out of the well and helped David escape from his enemies. There's a principle that the Lord raises his righteous ones after no more than three days. And so in Acts, when Peter quotes Psalm 30 
in Acts 2. He's standing in line with this tradition of using Psalm 30, the first fruits psalm, as a resurrection psalm. In Peter's words, the patriarch David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. And to this day, Messianic Jewish congregations continue to sing Psalm 30 on first fruits and throughout Omertide. Point is this first fruits has always been a resurrection holiday. Jesus rises on the feast of first fruits. Coincidence? Oh. <laughs> Maybe it is. No, it's not. First fruits gets some more airtime finally in the New Testament. I'm going to point out some cool things. Um, if you're starting to believe me that first fruits is a resurrection holiday and that uh, Jesus rises on the feast of first fruits, this should drive it home even more. Acts chapter 20 is the second time in Luke's writings that an event happens on, quote, the first day of the week. Four Gospels, Jesus rises the first day of the week. Acts 20, something else happens on the first day of the week. Uh, and it's another resurrection. Coincidence? I think not. Listen to this. Um, there's a debate about whether the first day gathering in Acts 20 is referring to a Sabbath evening or a Sunday morning. And these scholars are focused on answering the question, when did people start worshiping on Sundays? This is like a journalist question or a historian's question, not a liturgical question. It's not asking about the meaning of a day, just asking for dry facts. So we're not thinking about that. Um, the most obvious thing to say about Acts 20 and Luke 24 is that they tell parallel stories. Here's what I, here, here's what I see. In both Acts 20, verse 7, and Luke 24, verse 1, Luke uses identical temporal coordinates on the first day of the week. De temia ton sabaton. Same wording exactly. Second, in Acts 20 at verse 6, Luke clarifies that this first day is not just the first day of any week, but it's the first day that follows the seven days after the days of unleavened bread. Oh, that's a typo. That follows the days of unleavened bread. And so this is the Feast of first fruits again. It's not just the same day of the week, but the same day of the year. It's the anniversary of Jesus' resurrection. On the anniversary of Jesus' resurrection, Eutychus is raised. That's cool. Um, in both cases, Luke situates the narrative not only in the context of the week, but, the, but of the liturgical year. Third, in Acts 20 at verse 10, the narrative begins to develop in four steps. One, Peter tells the congregation at Troas not to be alarmed. Then he presents evidence that Eutychus is now living. Then he breaks bread. And finally, he, quote, converses a long while before departing at daybreak. Think back to Luke 24. Jesus tells his disciples not to be afraid. He presents evidence that he himself is now alive. Three, he eats with them. And finally, he converses with them before departing. The story has the same four steps. Eutychus' resurrection has the same shape as Jesus' resurrection. A fourth point. In Acts 20 at verse 12, in the absence of Paul, once Paul goes away, the congregation at Troas takes the youth away alive, and they are, quote, more than a little comforted. How comforted? More than a little. Great, fine. In Luke 24, uh, Jesus departs, and in his absence, the disciples worship in Jerusalem with great joy. I don't know why it's more than a little comforted and then with great joy. But it's the same thing. Like the great man of God goes away and people are left so happy with Sunday joy. 
Um, whether or not these correspondences between the stories make up enough evidence to say, you know, by the book of Acts, Christians are worshiping on Sunday, they at least give us grounds to make a liturgical claim. For Luke, the first day of the week, the day between unleavened bread and Pentecost, the Feast of First Fruits, is a liturgical concept. He wants us to think of the first day as a time when Christians gather, bodily resurrection happens and is celebrated, bread is broken and hearts are comforted, and joy is had. This is getting towards the theology of Sunday from Luke. It sounds pretty good. 1 Corinthians 15, 20, Christ is called the first fruits. Um, the New Testament uses first fruits language to talk about the concept of resurrection, and it does so most clearly in 1 Corinthians 15, 20. Here's the logic. Paul calls Christ, quote, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, and then he relates Christ's resurrection to the general resurrection. In Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. In the next chapter, Paul describes the household of Stephanus as the first fruits of Achaia. And then he calls Epinetus the first fruits of Asia to Christ in Romans 16. James uses the word first fruits to describe the Christians in the diaspora. He calls them, quote, a kind of first fruits among God's creatures. And Revelation calls the 144,000 who follow the Lamb the first fruits to God and to the Lamb. So the New Testament consistently uses the concept and language of first fruits to refer to the first to be harvested by God among a larger body. It's martyrs, it's converts, it's Jesus, it's Eutychus, it's those who suffer in the diaspora. What are those people? They're first fruits. They are the offering up to God on the first day of the week. One final passage, 1 Corinthians 16 at verse 2. Um, right after Paul calls Jesus the first fruits, and right before he calls um, Stephanus the first fruits, Paul instructs each of the Corinthians to, quote, put something aside and store it up on, quote, the first day. And these offerings sound a little bit like first fruits offerings, not exactly, but just enough for me to talk about them. Um, for one, Paul says, I would like each of you to put aside something as he may prosper. And once they've set aside their offering, Paul will receive it and hand it to those who will carry your gift to Jerusalem since it's, quote, a collection for the saints. Just like the original first fruits legislation in Leviticus only requires contributions from land-owning Israelites who do have a harvest, Paul only asks from contributions from those who prosper in some material way. Put it aside, store it up, bring it to Paul. And Paul almost like a Levite, like a priest, will bring the offering to those who need it. Not the same exact thing, but it's suggestive, isn't it? The first day of the week is like first fruits. That's all I have to say. Uh, to recap, pastors are shepherds and shepherds are kings. That means that pastors are kings. One thing kings do is they tell time and they lead people in celebrations. We see that in scripture. We see it in the U.S. federal government. We tell people what time it is. We say it's Sunday, or we say it's the Sabbath. What do we mean when we say that? I'm not trying to parse between right and wrong here necessarily. I want to commend the rich liturgical tradition of the Old Testament and say it's present in Luke. When we declare absolution, we're doing something like the Sabbath, the remission of debts. We're calling people 
to pay back uh, what they've gained by extortion, like Jesus does to Zacchaeus, recalling people to materially release people who are under their power, to release people under our spiritual power when we withhold forgiveness from them. Sunday is a day of confession and absolution and release and Sabbath. When we preside over the Lord's table, we're doing the Passover too, this kingly celebration that sums up all of redemption history in one prayer, one long kingly Solomonic prayer where we say exactly what God has done and we prepare them for what's coming the next day. The first day of the week is also the Feast of First Fruits, a day of resurrection of people who are lost being found, of converts, of martyrs, of bread being broken, of visits being made, and things being given back to God. Thank you. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.